This program is brought to you by Haymarket Books as part of our live event series. Haymarket Books is a radical, independent publisher dedicated to connecting social movements with the ideas they need in the struggle for a better world. You can help support the Haymarket Project by buying books at haymarketbooks.org and especially by joining the Haymarket Book Club. Be sure to subscribe to our podcast and the Haymarket YouTube channel to access all of our upcoming events. Okay, um, so for those of you who haven't been able to hear, I was just introducing the Abolition Now Network, uh, convened by Critical Resistance. And our current partners are The Red Nation, BYP 100, Song, Black Visions, Reclaim the Block, Drum, Survived and Punished, All of Us or None, LSPC, and Critical Resistance. So we can go to the next slide, please, the one with the definitions. Before we dive into things, what are these words we're saying? What is PIC? So PIC stands for Prison Industrial Complex. And PIC is a term that we use to describe the overlapping interests of government and industry that use surveillance, policing, and imprisonment as solutions to the economic, social, and political problems. Abolition. So PIC, or Prison Industrial Complex Abolition, is a political vision with the goal of eliminating imprisonment, policing, and surveillance, and creating lasting alternatives to punishment and imprisonment. And finally, what's policing? So policing is a little bit broader than we think. Policing is a social relationship made up of a set of practices that are empowered by the state to enforce law and social control through the use of force. So that sets a stage a little bit for us today. And now we're going to move in, diving in more around the origins in settler colonialism, racial capitalism, and imperialism. And I'm going to turn it over to Lou. Thank you, Sheila. Hi, everybody. Um, as you know, my name is Lou. Uh, I'm calling today from Lenape Hoking, um, also known as Brooklyn, my apartment. Um, I am a member of the Red Nation, as well um, as a chairperson for the Freedom, the East Coast Freedom Council, um, which is um, kind of a, a, a wide a wide regional um, freedom council at the moment of, of the Red Nation. Um, I am Dene from Arizona. I'm Dene on my mother's side and kind of a Anglo-Irish mess on, uh, on my father's side. Um, so today I've been asked to talk about colonization, um, right? A very long, complicated, epic history. Um, so I'm not going to be simplifying necessarily, but trying to zero in on some key themes today and also focusing mostly on the period from um, the late 19th century to um, broaching the present day. Because right, there are several different colonial European, uh, European nations who've left their marks on the Americas, but I'm gonna be talking specifically about the United States and its consolidation as an imperial power first through westward expansion. So I've been asked to cover sort of three main um, topics and we'll see how much of all of those I can get to. But first we're gonna be talking about the enclosure of land and um, the displacement of indigenous people that follows that enclosure and their replacement um, by settlers. 
So this is often understood as the logic of elimination that um, animates settler colonialism. And um, I'm going to be focusing mostly on how that um, is achieved in part through the imposition of private property. Second, I'm going to be talking about um, the creation of reservations as well as the taking of native prisoners of war and military forts and how this legacy um, continues in federal prisons. And lastly, um, the repression of indigenous resistance, which happened alongside right, the response to slave revolts, um, but also just any kind of unauthorized movements of black people and how that was maintained through militias um, as well as the U.S. military. So I think we're looking at a, the colonization slide, I, I hope. Um, it should say colonization, seizing the lands, disappearing the people. And in the background of that, you can see um, a map from, I think it's 1939 that I take, took from the Library of Congress of um, different Indian reservation lands. So just from that image alone, right, you can see that this entire um, continental mass, which was at one point all indigenous land um, being broken up into these reservations. So what happens when that land is settled and how does this settlement happen? Um, one big event in that long history uh, comes in 1887, the Dawes Act. Uh, the Dawes Act authorized breaking up tribal lands, partitioning them into individual plots, and then whatever was left over from those individual plots, right, was sort of up for grabs. And the rub here was that uh, those native people who did not accept the individual or those who did accept the individual allotments were allowed to become U.S. citizens. So just from that one act, we can see very clearly how um, the breaking up of land is very much tied to destroying systems of governance and ways of organizing life writ large. Right. Um, and also then trying to assimilate people into a foreign form of governance by becoming U.S. citizens. So there's a whole destructive um, force that's unleashed there that breaks up all the social relations that um, exist between a people and the land and how that relationship structures their relationships with each other. So when land is made into property, when it's seen um, as something that can be commodified, bought and sold, there's a um, whole new sort of set of relations that come into play there. And I think most clearly what we see in the Dawes Act is this kind of individualization that you can become a citizen, uh, a rights bearing citizen, because you have this one little partitioned piece of land as opposed to um, a more communal system in which um, there's something like the commons, right, um, that is not determined by market values or anything like that, and that people are accessing um, according to very different, um, what, what most many indigenous people um, formulate as types of kinship. So all of these are majorly disrupted when the land is made into property. And this is what Marx describes, right, as primitive accumulation, primitive meaning like primary, the first. And that primitive accumulation is accumulation by dispossession. And this is um, the violence of what of capitalism to Marx, but also to from this analysis of settler colonialism, right, of capitalist colonialism. And in the settler colony, we see that this violence, this primitive accumulation is not just doesn't just happen once. It's ongoing. Um, so the you know, this is part of the story of, of westward expansion where um, more and more sites are being cleared. Pe uh, indigenous people are being cleared from the land and that land is then made into something that can be commodified. And so this is a continuing violence and one that often cloaks itself as improvement, uh, whether that improvement is something like, um, you know, in the present day, seeing um, 
so-called like blighted communities being taken over by eminent domain in order um, for there to be development, uh, which actually displaces a bunch of people, or in the kind of um, less maybe accepted narrative, but one that still circulates, right, that colonization improved the lives of indigenous people by bringing them things like, um, you know, modern infrastructure, as opposed to seeing that as actually a really violent process that destroyed worlds and entire ways of life. So how was this um, accomplished? Many times just through sheer force. Uh, If you've ever driven around the U.S., but particularly in the West, um, you've probably noticed all of the fort names. I grew up in Arizona. There was many different forts. Uh, I went to soccer practice at a fort. Uh, My, like, whenever I need to access... um, services through my tribe, I have to get in touch with um, the the people at Fort Defiance, right? So that fort is now on reservation land. 20 of the reservations within the United States have the names of forts that were built there by the U.S. Army. So these forts um, both held Native people who fought uh, against or simply were in the way of U.S. expansion, but were just kind of that first marker of, of, US, president, of U.S. presence. Um, you know, leaders like Sitting Bull and Geronimo, or maybe some of the more famous people who were held at military forts um, during their resistance to U.S. occupation. And we can also see this as part of U.S. imperialism as it moves from the kind of continental domestic spheres, frontier um, frontier to frontier, then further, um, like moving overseas, um, for instance, to Hawaii. Um, if you speak with native Hawaiians, they describe an atmosphere of total militarization, right? Uh, and this is also because the U.S. stages um, the headquarters of Pacific Command there uh, as their kind of strategic outpost to stage aggression against Asia. So we see, yeah, this military presence just spreading wherever settlers are going, wherever land is being opened up to be commodified. And in order to make that happen, indigenous people are being either um, just straight up killed or um, sort of assimilated into citizenship uh, all through dispossession. And let's move to one particular fort, Fort Yuma. If we could go to the next slide, please. So Fort Yuma was a fort in California, literally in a county that's called Imperial County. Um, So you can't really get more blatant than this, right? Um, And it was actually abandoned in the late 19th century, transferred to the Department of the Interior. And then that site, that fort, becomes an Indian school, as it was called, the Fort Yuma Indian School. Um, As well as a mission, right? So if you've driven around California, you know there's like forts and missions, um, dotting the landscape as sort of the the two forces that are really helping um, colonization take place um, and beginning to criminalize ways of inhabiting the land that do not fit into um, the new kind of tyranny of private property. Uh, If we can go to the next slide, you will see an image um, of what this fort looked like while it was an Indian school. And I found this image just really striking for kind of, for me, being a really early example of this American connection between education and incarceration, right? What we now call the school to prison pipeline. And here it's like the school and the prison are one location. Um, So for those who aren't familiar, I I won't get into um, a lot of detail, but um, there is a history, right, of boarding schools in the United States in which... um, 
Native youth, Native children were taken from their families um, and coerced to move into these boarding schools, um, oftentimes like right away from their tribal land. So as a way to kind of, again, disrupt the social relations that bridge people to relating to land outside of a property, uh, property relation. Um, so this was a was an ongoing policy of the United States to take children and put them in boarding schools um, where education was not really the goal, right? It was that separation and um, this kind of control. So again, I'm looking at boarding schools as kind of, yeah, again, the early example of this um, school to prison pipeline. Because it's not even a pipeline there, it's really just um, occupying the same site. And other ways we can see um, the kind of destruction of colonial policy and particularly of the kind of um, individualization that um, private property calls for in some ways is um, the criminalization of homelessness, particularly native homeless people. Um, but we see, you know, the criminalization of homelessness in every um, major city, minor city, you know, right throughout the United States, if you are not inhabiting the land properly, you are wrong rather than the dispossession itself that has made you homeless being wrong. Another way we see this um, violence being upheld is through um, law enforcement in border towns, but also just like white civilians in border towns. And when I say border town, I'm referring to um, cities and towns that um, exist on the edges of Indian reservations. So for instance, um, much of my family is in Gallup, New Mexico. Um, there's just an incredible amount of violence that is allowed um, to happen there against native people by both cops, but also by teenagers, right? Um, just generally white settlers. Um, and again, this is a kind of way of imposing a certain uh, everyday terror on indigenous people's lives simply for existing near or on their ancestral lands. Uh, if we could go to the next slide, please. So this continuum of colonial violence, that's what I'm calling it, right? We see it every day in um, the ways in which cops are able to hassle native people who may be houseless, um, when we see um, teens or other um, white people just like having um, very violent field days harassing Native people. Um, this is like literally described as a hobby in some border towns, right? Um, and again, this is just one of the ways in which Native people existing on their lands causes them to be targets of this kind of violence. Um, but we also see it in these images um, on this slide of... Um, these maybe might be familiar images to some of us, right, from the No Dapple, No Dakota Access Pipeline struggle at Standing Rock, which was met with um, coordinated attacks by all levels of law enforcement, right, from local cops, state cops, um, the National Guard, as well as Tiger Swan, this private military or, um, you yeah, this private security force, uh, all with incredible amounts of military gear. And what are they all trying to secure? They're trying to secure um, corporate access to land. So the continuing ability for them to sell and make a profit on land. And you know, the most, one of the most ridiculous excuses for this kind of thing with like, with pipelines, right, is that this is like a sort of some sort of climate solution. So again, we see it, see it framed um, in the context of improving the land, um, or at least are improving our overall situation for settlers, right? And sort of indigenous people are seen as the necessary sacrifice to, to make that happen. Um, 
And we have very recently, one of the water protectors was freed. Um, but there is still a pattern that I think was established at No Dapple in terms of the kind of state repression of water protectors that has been just the increased criminalization of any kind of protest, peaceful or not, right, that we saw um, after Ferguson, that we saw this summer after the uprisings with just incredibly uh, trumped up charges for people um, and these really protracted legal battles while we're still trying to get Leonard Peltier free, right, from our struggle in the 70s. Um, so this is in some ways, I think a, a bleak story, right? Um, I haven't said the word genocide, but that's a big part of that story as well, right? If you can't, um, if you can't assimilate the people, um, you kill them. If you can't kill them, you assimilate them. These have been sort of the very, the varying tactics of the United States government and its expansion. And those things can't be ignored. But I guess if I were to think about what that also means, it's that it shows just how much effort and how much sheer violence and force it takes for the U.S. to get that far, right? This was not some sort of natural process, that this took an incredible amount of force, um, and it and it still does, right? The continuance of that colonial violence takes so much um, force and so many resources, and it's not complete, right? Uh, I'm here, my family's here. Um, indigenous people are still, um, practicing their ways as, as stymied as it has been, as it has been by colonial expansion. Um, so I did want to try to not, I mean, it's not a, a bright note to end on, but just to think about the fact that this was something that, you know, took so much effort on their end. Um, and it will take a lot of effort to undo, but again, this is not. This was not an inevitable process. This was not something that just happened. Um, it took an incredible um, and a very long period of continual violence that is still ongoing. So we're still living in that um, in that colonial period. It didn't end. And as we might hear from later, right, the kind of um, tactics of what um, Manu Karuka calls um, continental imperialism are very similar to then what um, kind of imperial tactics the U.S. uses abroad. Um, so colonization did not just necessarily affect indigenous people, but it's something that then um, kind of takes over the, the U.S.'s entire orientation to not only indigenous people, but in many times um, its own citizens, um, particularly black people, but then also those overseas who are not citizens and those who are not citizens within these bounds. Um, so I think I'll, I'll end it there for now and look forward to the rest of the conversation. Thank you. Thank you so much, Lou. Thank you. Yeah. For taking us all the way through that history and yes, the incredible amount of violence and also the incredible amount of resilience of indigenous people. Right. Um, Thank you so much. So now I'm going to turn it over to Woods Urban, right, to talk about racial capitalism. Hello, everyone. Um, my name is Woods Urban. I use they, them pronouns um, and am currently located on Wampanoag land or uh, northeastern Massachusetts. Um, so I'll be reviewing the key 
uh, development of key moments in U.S. history. Um, well, actually, the U.S. Uh, police and imprisonment system um, as part of developing and strengthening U.S.-based racial capitalism. Um, so I'm going to start um, with a definition before going into three examples, um, three examples that are going to be anchored in, let's say, two-ish periods. Um, so uh, to ground us um, in the periods I'm going to discuss, um, I'm going to start with a definition of racial capitalism. Um, to quote Robin D.G. Kelly's 2017 essay about Cedric Robinson's definition of racial capitalism, um, while writing Black Marxism, Robinson encountered intellectuals in South Africa who used the phrase racial capitalism to refer to South Africa's economy under apartheid. Um, he developed it from a description of a specific system. Um, to a way of understanding the general history of modern capitalism. Um, so um, if we can put up the first slide, sorry. Um, capitalism is an economic system that requires the constant circulation of capital throughout the system, growing more and more capital for capitalists. Um, this system depends on exploitation in order to survive, exploitation of land, resources, people, etc. And in order to justify the difference in exploitation of some people over others, capitalism requires we institute arbitrary hierarchies, race being a fundamental one. Um, a key takeaway um, is that capitalism has always been racialized. It was as part of its birth in Europe amongst its people. It was as part of colonization and the practice of slavery in the United States. Um, and it is clearly still core to how capitalism functions today. Um, so now I'm going to go into my first period and examples. Um, next slide, please. Um, you should the first thing you should be seeing actually are um, a group of police officers in black and white. Okay, so the period around Reconstruction, um, 1840s to the 1870s. This period is significant because it is a time in which labor relations dramatically change in the United States due to the emancipation from slavery of black labor. So a little bit of background. Prior to this period, we have the growth of racialized criminalization with the introduction of curfew laws for all Black and Indigenous people, establishing race as a defining criteria in law enforcement in the new colonies. Um, many Southern cities, including Charleston, New Orleans, and Mobile, have, had formed paramilitary groups tasked with control of enslaved people to prevent and suppress rebellion. Um, past laws had been instituted, allowing for the arrest of any Black person without a pass, regardless of status. So in 1845, there's the establishment of the first unified and uniformed police force in New York City. So this is only about 150-ish years old. Um, Boston and Philadelphia follow. New York City's example, 
and this uh, the the uniform um, uniform police force is based on the London Watch model, and as it as in London, the establishment of police departments in the United States was based on the on the growth of so-called property crimes. Um, as police in the U.S. began to coalesce into one relatively uniform type, what used the previous law enforcement models like um, guards, watchmen, militias, and slave patrols began to coalesce into city-run 24-hour police. Next slide, please. So um, we move to 1865 and the emancipation of enslaved people. Immediately following emancipation, Black workers engage in fights for an expansion of rights and political power. Um, this is called, this is all part of Reconstruction. Um, and so Reconstruction and a rapid gain of political power by Black people in the South is met with extreme legal and extra legal backlash, including violent vigilante and militia action against Black people attempting to vote or run for office. So Southern law enforcement is often indistinguishable from white supremacist vigilante groups. Um, why this period is significant to policing. The core purpose of policing to protect property relations is solidified. The methods of targeting Black and Indigenous people in the U.S. become translate over and become part of its functioning as well. So now for the second-ish period. Um, I say ish because it moves right from the first one. Um, so this period is the late 1800s and turn of the century. Um, this period is marked both by the emergence of the United States um, eco economic dominance globally, as well as the huge economic crises of the 1920s. So um, in the late, uh, the late 1800s, as urbanization increases, so does the elite fears of working class rebellion, which in turn drive an expansion of policing. Next slide, please. A concrete and illuminating example of this period is the Haymarket Riots in Chicago. In 1886, um, workers are organizing um, for the eight hour day. Um, there had been several days of intense police repression of workers leading up to a rally that was scheduled for May 4th. Um, literally on May 3rd, the day before, cops had murdered a few people. So the rally on May 4th was both for the eight-hour day and also against police violence. Cops show up to the rally and a bomb goes off. The cops then begin firing, killing both protesters and police. A group of anarchists and socialists are blamed for the deaths of the police at the rally. And then raids on activist, the, the activist community ensue, and ultimately eight, eight men are convicted as examples. Um, and four of them are murdered by execution. So this example is significant in that it both encapsulates how policing was deployed to stop the gains being made by workers, but also because repression breeds resistance, um, galvanizing labor movements to fight harder, propelling the movement to win the eight-hour day forward, um, forward to victory. 
So throughout the early 20th century, police departments continued to escalate to match the growth in size and power of labor movements. In 1905, the first state police agency is established in Pennsylvania in response to private police forces used by mine and mill owners to stop worker strikes and the inability or refusal of local police to enforce law. So another important example from this period is the Battle of Blair Mountain in Logan County, West Virginia. It was the largest labor uprising in U.S. history since the Civil War. For five straight days from late August to early to September 1921, um, around 10,000 armed coal miners um, confronted 3,000 cops and strike breakers who were backed by coal mine operators during um, during the miners' attempts to unionize the southwest, um, the, the southwestern West Virginia coal fields, um, when tensions rose between workers and mine management. The battle ended after approximately one million rounds were fired, and the U.S. Army, represented by the West Virginia Army National Guard, intervened by presidential order. While this was a clearly a, a, like a huge loss. Um, it was a powerful example of cross-race solidarity um, as part of labor resistance. Um, it also led to the generation, the generation of the largest unions in the United States. Um, as we move into the um, 1920s and 1930s, um, IWW and other unions are particularly active um, police are routinely deployed as a shield between corporations and unions, breaking up strikes and threatening labor organizers with violence. State police forces spread as a response to union actions and large corporations, um, as you, you saw like, um, um, per the examples, um, sometimes had private police forces. forces um, or their own private security forces. Um, but corporations saw this as expensive and reformers saw this as unsavory um, and state troopers become the solution. Um, so by 1930s, every state had some form of a state police agency. Um, so I'm gonna close the, out this period here. The takeaway of this period and example is, in the two examples is that it demonstrates the way that police have always um, have and always will stand in direct opposition to the labor movement and its goals. Calls for labor unions and elected representatives to break ties with the uh, Fraternal Order of Police, um, which strengthen the fight against policing, as well as the aims of organized labor. Um, so last for period three, um, the late 1970s and 1980s, um, this period is marked by an economic crisis, the end of the welfare state, mass deindustrialization and deregulation, and the disciplining of labor movements and radical movements in the United States. Um, as background on prisons, I'm going to do a quick paraphrase of Foucault. Um, the practice of putting people in cages for part of all of their lives has been part of the development of modern secular states. Capitalism is an unstable system and prone to crisis. Um, in order to stabilize capitalism and get us to accept it, prisons have become, has been de de um, 
deployed increasingly as a way of social control. Prisons both um, depersonalized social control so that it could be managed um, across time and space and satisfied the demands of reformers who largely prevailed in the fights against corporal punishment or bodily punishment, which um, still endures with the death penalty and many torturous conditions of confinement. Um, the 1960s demands for radical social and political transformation um, led to pushback in the name of law and order and the war on crime. The prison became the site for reasserting order and addressing social problems, social problems resulting from the excessive liberalization of the 60s. The California prison boom in the 1980s is a strong example in this period. Um, here I'll paraphrase Ruth Wilson Gilmore's explanation of how California became the state with the most massive prison system in the country with the most massive prison system in the world. Capitalism necessarily require, produces surplus and surplus can lead to crisis. The reason why the surplus becomes a crisis, the reasons why the surplus becomes a crisis are not only economic, but political and social. They require constant political organization to solve and resolve. This happens via a struggle of capitalists and those of us it dominates, which is all of us now. Um, as part of the introduction of neoliberal management to resolve the crisis of surplus that's starting in the 19 started in the 1970s and that we're still dealing with today, um, um, leading to the the sort of first depression in the 1970s, but hasn't really been resolved since then. Um, business leaders and politicians needed somewhere to put all of this surplus money, that's the surplus resources that are moving through capitalism. Um, these surplus resources could have gone um, to some to more schools under the UC system or more parks or any other number of life generating projects. But instead, due to the aim to just to further dismantle the welfare state, the desire to just to, to suppress the working people, the working poor, many of whom were losing work as deindustrialization occurred and factories left um, and a demographic shift of more people of color. Um, these resources went into prison because they address these crises in ways that satisfy capitalists, tough on crime politicians, and enough of the middle and working classes. They became, they became the go-to way of addressing problems like this as they manifested again and again. Um, the surplus into prisons, jails, and detention facilities would become a foundational strategy across the country for managing the variety of crises that states were going through as they worked to sort of stabilize neoliberalism. Um, this was only put to like a halt when people from across the state um, of California fought to stop the building of Delano II in, 2000, in the year 2000. Um, while they did lose that fight, um, it was the, bat, the last prison built in California to date. So when we fight, we win. Um, the key takeaway here is that the phenomenon frequently identified as mass incarceration um, was driven by economic, political, and social issues that could have been and can still be resolved by other means. Um, 
So to close in general, um, as was introduced earlier, the prison industrial complex is used as a means to address political, social, and economic problems. If we're going to build the free and just future that our communities long for, we have to strive to understand the PIC's relationship to racial capitalism uh, like as, as we work um, toward PIC abolition. And I'll pass it back to Sheila, thank you. Wow, thank you so much, Woods. I couldn't believe that we would do the history of racial capitalism in 15 minutes, but you did it. Um, all right, now I'm going to turn it over to Mohammed to talk about imperialism and the prison industrial complex. Awesome. <clears throat> Hello, everyone. Thank you so much, Sheila. And thank you to Lou and Woods for all of that knowledge and that history to really ground us. Um, my name is Mohammed Shek. I'm with Critical Resistance, and I am uh, joining you all today from Ohlone land, um, now also known as Oakland, California. Um, so I am here to talk about the relationship between imperialism and the prison industrial complex. And that is um, no small task, <laughs> but I will try my best. Um, so to begin, I want to just go over a definition of imperialism. And this is on um, the next slide from my title slide. And I'm just gonna read the first part of it. Um, imperialism is a global system whereby the dominant political economic interests of one nation expropriate for their own enrichment, the land, labor, raw materials and markets of another people. And so in, in understanding imperialism, this is just a, a, for us to be on the same page around the language and understanding that we're using, it is very much tied inseparable from capitalism and colonialism and its um, uh, response to crises in those systems, right? Um, We can go to the next slide. So the prison industrial complex, um, which was laid out in the beginning as the interlocking systems and interests that use policing, imprisonment, and surveillance are very much uh, caught up in and used by imperialist forces, not just for how they function you know, within those countries, but also internationally, right? So on the one hand, we have to understand the military, for instance, as part and parcel of the prison industrial complex. It, it essentially functions, the US military, as the world's policing agency. We are the, the top cop. And in fact, in kind of drawing on some of the history that Woods was laying out for us, 
It was the building up of the military industrial complex through and after the second war, second world war, um, in that last phase that Woods was talking about, that laid the conditions for the rise of the prison industrial complex, right? And then on the other hand, as part of this country's imperialist reach, the U.S. exports its model of policing, imprisonment, and the PIC as a whole to different countries. And again, the purpose, as I hope is clear from my, my former previous speakers, are uh, is to contain and control racialized working class people and communities in resistance. Right. And so this is exactly why after neoliberal policies were waged on third world countries for decades, we began to see a dramatic rise in the PIC in those same countries. So I have here a slide up, um, that you can see. Um, oh, I think that maybe the slides may have gotten a little bit out of order, but that's okay. Um, John, if you can go to the, the slide that uh, has the case study plan Columbia, that would be great. Um, so if we look at Latin America as an example, so Colombia at one point was one of the most unequal countries where inequality was the highest across Latin America. It is still among the most unequal uh, countries in Latin America today. And the way states have chosen to respond to inequality is through harsh criminalization measures and the PIC. So between 1993 and 2013, the prison population and the prison budget in Colombia quadrupled. For those of you that may be familiar, the U.S. engaged in something that was known as Plan Colombia from 1999 to about 2015. So what was this program? This was a military aid program that was part of the war on drugs on the one hand, and also sought to um, crush left-wing forces in the country. So in addition to all of the military aid and the money that was funneled into Colombia to accomplish those two aims, Plan Colombia also included, and I quote, a program for improvement of the Colombian prison system. And what that was, was an agreement to have the U.S.'s BOP, the Bureau of Prisons, be part of designing new prisons in Colombia. So the, B the, the BOP chose the maximum security prison at Coleman in Florida to be the model to be reproduced in Colombia. So 15 new Coleman max security prisons were built throughout Colombia within a time span of just around 10 years. And so just to kind of zoom out a little bit, I know that's one concrete example, but it really serves as a model of how the U.S. 
has used, has engaged in imperialist ventures and used imperialist power to spread the PIC. So um, just to go back to the point about inequality, if we can go to the next slide. So Ruth Gilmore has made the point that the most unequal countries have the largest imprisonment populations. So that's certainly the case with the U.S., where it has the highest income inequality among G7 countries. And it has the world's largest prison population, right? Um, but if we look to Latin America again, the country with the highest inequality is Brazil, which is also home to Latin America's largest prison population in both size and rate. So it's basically like the U.S. of Latin America when it comes to the PIC. Um, and also, I would add, in electing fascists to the role of leaders of the country. Um, so in really looking at the way that imperialism and then the exportation and the use of the prison industrial complex um, across Latin America, we can also see the similarities that have happened across Africa. Across, uh, across Asia and the Middle East, right? So the U.S. exerts imperialist domination, creating devastation over other parts of the world in its attempt to maintain power, hegemony, and its control of resources, right? And this, of course, is the primary reason for migration. It's forced migration where we make a country or region unlivable to varying degrees, then as people leave to seek out better living conditions in other places, we respond with further criminalization policies. And that happens through the imposition of borders and border security, the restriction of movement, and the detention and deportation of undocumented people within our own borders, right? So we've seen how with immigration, how that has played out in Latin America, and that has come about as a response to the U.S. wanting to engage in a war on drugs, engage in um, uh, repression of leftist and socialist forces. And the way that it has done that is through building up local repressive forces that it props up through coups, financial aid, and diplomatic support that results in devastated communities. In the Middle East and in East Africa, what that has looked like is Western-led or fueled war and intervention, right? And so that those actions have destabilized Iraq, Syria, Yemen, Afghanistan, and Somalia, uh, among others, Libya, right? And causing many to have to flee their homelands. And we can go over to the next slide. And what we see here is the response to what is quote unquote called by the politicos and the mainstream as the refugee crisis, although it is a very imperialist uh, uh, power-induced crisis, right? Um, 
The response is that we have a turn to the prison industrial complex, right? And so here, this was, um, this is just a, a snapshot of an article where European countries in responding to the crisis started looking to the state of Israel, right? Um, in order to bolster up their border security. And we'll talk a little bit about that in a minute. Um, you can go to the next slide. So uh, <clears throat> in the months following 9-11, US law enforcement uh, began engaging in the building up of it, the, the militarization of its police forces, began engaging in the building up of its surveillance capabilities and developing closer relationships across its law enforcement and policing agencies, as well as with other countries, right? And this um, was under the guise, obviously, as the war on terror. So we begin to see kind of like the contours of the rationale of imperialism. You know, we have the war on terror, we have the, uh, the war on drugs, we have, and connected to that is the war on gangs, right? And it's these war on X and Y that uh, the, the, the benefactors of the PIC use to expand their power, right? And so one of the things to just go back to what was shown on that earlier slide is that um, the U.S. also began developing or, or uh, having a closer relationship to the state of Israel. It has, you know, we know that it has long... Uh, been a supporter of Israeli oppression against the Palestinian people and other imperialist ventures in the region. Um, but Israel was really seen as an expert on fighting quote unquote terrorism, i.e. Arab and Muslim people. Right. And, you know, we talk about how the police forces in the United States started traveling to Israel to kind of train with them. And as has been shown by the, the two previous speakers, the U.S. did not need to go to Israel to learn how to control and kill black and brown people, right? The important thing here is that after 9-11, police forces really took on the war on terror and, um, and sought to expand their connections and collaborations with international forces of repression. Right. And so um, in looking at this slide, you see that U.S. troops are virtually everywhere. And so when I said that the U.S. military is like the world's cop, top cop, that is not hyperbole. Right. Um, and he, here you see the, the really the close relationships between the, the PIC and, and imperialist ventures. Um, but if we can go to the next slide. So here, it's important to understand this relationship between the U.S. 
the, the vast military presence and the role of the state of Israel um, and the broader constellation of repressive forces. So the U.S. gives $10.1 million of military aid to Israel every single day. Um, it has very similar um, aid packages and deals that it, it provides to other countries. Um, the purpose of those packages to build up international kind of military capabilities is on the one hand for the U.S. to maintain uh, uh, control, interest, and power and to make sure that its friends are strong, right? But when we look at, for instance, the U.S.-Israeli relationship, those funds are being used to develop weapons, technologies, tools, and tactics. And the way that it, the Israeli state does that is that it uses the Palestinian population as a test population, right? Um, and so it perfects its surveillance technology, its weaponry, and then it exports that back to the U.S., but also to other countries across the world. Right. And so uh, the U.S. isn't just giving this money like, oh, we support Israel. We want to give it money. Right. It is actually benefiting by getting all this new and improved battleground tested technology, which is how it's uh, built. So this is precisely why Israel, for instance, is the world's largest exporter of electronic monitoring technologies, um, which very much includes the growing use of ankle monitors in the U.S. And um, so we see the PIC in the U.S. and how it is very much deeply entrenched in these imperialist relationships, right? Um, if we can go to the next slide, and I will try and wrap up my thoughts. Um, I, I always like to end on a positive note. <laughs> um, so um, in talking about all this awful stuff and, and the way these systems function, I think it's equally important for us to talk about resistance. And we are going to talk more about resistance later, but I, I want to just end here. Um, where um, Stop Urban Shield, as you, this is a picture from a rally um, and a direct action that, that we organized in, in a coalition. Um, Stop Urban Shield was a broad coalition of grassroots community and social justice organizations that came together against Urban Shield. And that was a SWAT team training and weapons expo that brought together local, regional, and international police military units to collaborate together, right? To learn from each other, to, to strengthen their relationships. And so this was part of the ongoing arc of the War on Terror. It was a counterterrorism grant-funded program. Urban Shield sought to militarize and bolster up local police, as well as international collaboration. So we waged a five-plus-year campaign that successfully defunded and ended Urban Shield, which really was an emblem of this relationship between the prison industrial complex 
and the international imperialist relationships that exist. And so I point to that as just one way where we can be uh, thinking and fighting locally with an internationalist scope, right? And an anti-imperialist scope in mind. Um, and then the last, very last thing that I'll note is that earlier this year, Critical Resistance, along with um, all of the organizations on this webinar, um, put together a, uh, we put out a COVID platform, an abolitionist platform in response to COVID. And I want to note that the last point, it's five points, the last one really uplifts the importance of internationalism and anti-imperialism if we are to talk about abolition. We can't talk about one without talking about the other. And so the things that we're confronting here in, in our communities with police, uh, with imprisonment, with surveillance, those fights are fundamentally connected to the struggles for self-determination elsewhere. And I will pass it back to Sheila. Thank you. Amazing. Thank you so much. Um, wonderful. Well, I hope all of you watching are enjoying this as much as I am right now. So we're going to move now into a chance for some audience engagement. Um, so someone who is moderating the chat on YouTube is going to drop in a link to Mentimeter, which will ask a question, two questions um, that we would like you all to answer. So the first question is, what are examples of these three projects as they appear today? And so those, those um, projects, again, are um, settler colonialism, racial capitalism, and imperialism. And the second question we're curious about is, what liberation projects do you know of in response to these? So again, like Mohammed finished up, um, where, where are you seeing the resistance? Because as Wood Woods told us, um, repression breeds resistance, right? So we've got those coming in the chat. Um, and we're going to take a, like a 10 minute break for folks to fill those out, right? And then we're going to come back and be able to hear from what you all thought. And then we will be going to Tynetta to hear about the awesome work happening with BYP 100. And we'll have um, a live question and answer session at the end. All right. Thank you so much. All right. Welcome back, everyone. Thank you all. You all wrote such beautiful answers. Thanks for engaging with the questions. So um, I think we're able to share some of the answers up on the screen. And I just wanted to take a minute um, and reflect on some of these. And I'd also invite panelists if there are um, other responses that really stood out to you or you'd like to respond to, um, please feel free. So the first question was, what are three examples of the settler colonialist, uh, racial capitalist and imperialist projects as they appear today? And folks gave 
great answers such as um, seeing gentrification, um, war making, controlling land, and U.S. police trainings across the world. Um, Someone shared settler colonialism exists not only in the repression of native peoples in the U.S., but also the spread of capitalism in the global south. Um, racial capitalism exists in redlining and environmental racism and imperialism in U.S. foreign policy. And someone else brought up racial capitalism shows up in the exploitation of essential workers in the age of COVID. Yes, I think that there could not be a more stark example in this moment, right? Um, and also seeing settler colonialism in the persistence of residential segregation. Um, and several folks mentioned seeing uh, imperialism present in the forced sterilization of people imprisoned in ICE detention. So thank you so many so much for those examples of the current projects as they show up today. Um, before we turn to examples of resistance, other panelists, are there are there um, answers that you wanted to react to from that? Just that I appreciate the point about the essential workers. I'm glad that somebody said that. Um, yeah, so oh, great. Um, segregation. How's, how's, can you hear this better? A little better. Um, just saying that I appreciate all the points, but particularly the one about um, racial segregation and housing, because I think it kind of points right that um, these projects of racial capitalism also relate to land and how land um, is sort of organized and controlled and how people are, are made to live on it. Uh, and sort of seeing kind of the um, past and present housing crisis um, as both class struggles, but also um, colonial struggles in the sense that they are, um, you know, in many ways about, about the land that, that um, these housing um, or what passes for housing often um, exist on. Yeah, thank you. Yeah, and how, right, all parts of the PIC are involved in that too, and how different levels of policing are involved in evictions. Um, yeah, thank you. Cool. So let's talk about liberation. Um, so the, the next question was, what liberation projects or movements do you know of in res response to these projects. So people brought up really great examples, um, talking about uh, indigenous resistant movements in Guatemala, um, speaking out in the name of self-determination to resist exportation of U.S. border policies, um, hashtag land back initiatives, right? We've been seeing that coming up. Um, massive protests globally, right? Yeah, we're kind of in a moment of uh, mass liberation project right now. Um, 
Yeah. And mutual aid, someone brought up um, the rise of mutual aid networks uh, as we're thinking about living under COVID um, and continued living under racial capitalism right now. And I'm just scrolling through here. Someone else brought up the Right to the City Alliance, which I'm not familiar with. Anyone here familiar with and want to share some stories of liberation from that? I'll look in the chat too. Awesome. Um, panelists, any of these examples that folks shared with us that you have reactions to? I really appreciate um, whoever bought up mutual aid. Mutual aid um, is something that I practice extensively this summer with BYP 100 and multiple other organizations in the city of Chicago. And um, it really taught me about the importance of critical and collective resistance. And I think that when we continue to show and prove with mutual aid, we can say that even though the government has not invested in us the way we need to, we can invest in each other and create wellness for each other. Beautiful, thank you for sharing that. Any other reactions to this question right now? Oh, Woods, I see you. Oh, I was just going to say that um, the Right to the City Alliance is like a um, is an organization or a network of organizations that um, came together um, in the mid to late 2000s um, as a national response to gentrification and a call to um, uh, stop the displacement of uh, low income people, people of color, um, queer communities and young folks around um, from from their neighborhoods. Um, so and they do fantastic, fantastic work over there. So just wanted to say I agree. Awesome. <laughs> awesome. Thank you so much. Cool. Well, thank you all for engaging in this um, exercise. And like I said before, we will also have time at the end for Q&A uh, using the chat. Um, so now I'm going to turn it over to Tynetta to talk about liberation projects and the current moment. Thank you so much. Um, so before I begin, of course, this first slide here says, how do we win in 2020 and beyond? And at BYP 100, we believe that it is our collective resistance coupled with recognizing that everyone's unique personal narrative, examining the world through an abolitionist, queer black lens and amplifying the voices of those mar most marginalized that we will win. My name is Tynetta Hill Muhammad, and I live on the traditional homelands of the Council of the Three Fires, or AKA Chicago. And um, I love Chicago, especially the South Side, which is where I am. And I think that this question is important in this current movement where we are really in a time where we're not, a, it's not a moment. We are deciding to create massive changes and come together to make 
critical resistance against an imperialistic state. It's extremely, it's even more important to examine this from the idea of a decentralized lens. We currently have a movement that is decentralized. And what does it look to have a leaderless, as some people say, Black Lives Matter movement or live or movement that puts an emphasis on people who are most in the margin? A movement like this is important because we don't have people who are centered or quote unquote leaders, but everyone is a leader and the movement is leaderful. And that's what we are. That's what our praxis is here at BYP 100. Can we go to the next slide, please? So decolonialization um, dismantles all forms of imperialism at all levels, and it is for everyone. This is a very important statement because when we think about decolonialization and we think about the fight that we are creating um, and the movement and momentum that we're creating, we have to understand that decolonialization is not just for people who are at the most margined. It is for every single person that exists. It is for a creation of a total better society. Can we go to the next slide, please? So here we see from contact to conquest. In order to create decolonialization, we have to move past the American colonialist-centered framework um, or move out of the mindset of America-centered. Our movement has to be international and intentional. When we describe um, the contact between indigenous people of America, the first contact usually describes encounters between cultures that were previously unaware of each other. And oftentimes when we describe this in America, that is between indigenous people and Europeans between the 15th and the 17th century. In reality though, the Americas were populated by millions of people from culturally distinct communities and thousands of these first contacts um, were not really first contacts in the sense that uh, this land was already inhabited and it already was cultivated. When we examine first contact and we examine people who are um, indigenous to this land, we really have to put an emphasis on the fact that Europeans are more likely to be identified by their individuality, their individual names and nationalities, whereas indigenous people are identified as groups and as whole masses. The importance of this is because nobody wants to be lumped up together. <laughs> Not all the times, of course we are family, but it erases the individuality and the distinct personhood of a person when you lump them all together and don't allow them the space to be a creator of themselves. Can we go to the next slide? This slide says, what is genocide? So the definition here is the definition by the UN. And this definition is extremely important to this further conversation about what it looks like to have a colonial uh, decolonialization. Most people have not seen this um, definition, but when we say we charge genocide, 
we really look in the framework of the fact that America has and continues to commit harm, harmful acts with the intent to destroy whole or in part national, ethnic, racial, or religious groups. Genocide is not simply um, the physical killing. Genocide is calculated. And the prison industrial complex, ICE, and other aspects of the imperialistic society are created as a way to maintain structures of colonialization. So we charge genocide to America for the, for the things that they have done to people in this country and across the world. May we go to the next slide, please? Domestic imperialism and environmental racism is very important to the land movement that exists within indigenous communities. So here I have three pictures. One is of the Stop Dakota Access Pipeline. One is of Humboldt Bay, as it is called. And another is of the Black Hills site. All three of these sites have been highly contested in the sense that with the Black Hills, the Supreme Court has recognized that the United States has performed domestic imperialism and taken on a space that is not their own, creating the Washington Monument and robbed the indigenous people of their ability to life and liberty. With the Stop Dakota Access Pipeline, we talk about the importance of water and water protectors who exist as a way to talk about the to to remind us that we are not owners of the land and that the land is something that we are here to cultivate and share amongst each other. When we examine Humboldt Bay here off the coast of California, it is important that we talk about the um, or Dulawa Island, it's important that we talk about the 300 members that were killed in the process of defending this land in the mid 18th, in the mid 17th century. This massacre along with disease, <clears throat> excuse me, disease and genocide associated with white settlers in California nearly wiped out the entire tribe. It is people like Josephine Mandamin a founding member of the Water Protectors Movement, who left us in her physical form last year, who reminds us of the importance of in building awareness of pollution, laws um, that are destructive to our world, fracking and the selling of the water. But domestic imperialism is more than just taking land. Domestic imperialism is when we we strip from people their right to self-determination and their ability to set themselves in a space that they can become safe and be safe. Can we go to the next slide, please? So I'm gonna go into some of the liberation projects, the current moment and statues are falling. Um, currently, we're going through the a large defund the police campaign. This is not new. We know that police take 
the majority of many city budgets. And in Chicago specifically, there are more police per capita than there are in any other city. However, we have some of the highest rates of crime. When we understand that there are intersectional issues that create the the things that happen in our societies, in our communities, we know that when we defund the police, we're not going towards lawlessness, even though we still exist with lawlessness with police. We are coming to the idea that because the police take on so much in terms of funding and also in terms of positionality, they are unable to be therapists. They are unable to be mental health services or health care providers. Police are only taught and are usually taught the enforcement of the laws that protect property. And when they are in the position that they are in, they are not there typically to take care of this of people in the, these spaces and especially not minority or marginalized people. Then we talk about the land back and reparations liberation project that is happening currently. So a land back is not a new um, a new concept. Land back is an effort to restore stolen territories to indigenous nations, and it sets a a bold standard um, where it's making these policies possible and moving people forward. It recognizes that white environmentalists exist and they are they are here with the understanding of protecting solely the the physical aspects of the land without recognizing the symbiotic relationship between land and people. The social and political liberation that we are going through right now is important because it is existing as a spark throughout the entire world. It is the fact that in 2020, there was a there was a protest for Black Lives Matter in every single country all over the world. This is letting everyone know that people are watching and they are seeing the things that are happening, not only in their country, but also in America, which seems to pride itself on this idea that it is the land of the free. Statues are falling. This picture here is of a picture in Chicago um, of the Columbus statue, um, actually right after a protest um, decolonized uh, Zikagon, where um, the Columbus statue was taken down temporarily and the statue, statues are symbolic fixtures to fixed points in time. It is important that when we, when statues are taken down, we recognize that people are using these as idols to fixed point in time, um, physical representations of times that are destructive and um, dismantling to the the psyche and harmful to people who are marginalized. These monuments are reminders that your colonizer has more recognition in the world than you will ever get recognition. 
And this is especially true for Black and Indigenous people who have been ignored in data and have been ignored in their personhood. I have a quote at the bottom by France Fanon from The Wretched of the Earth. It says, for colonized people, the most essential value, because the most concrete, is first and foremost the land, the land which will bring them bread and above all, dignity. Another large movement that is happening in this time and has always been a part of BYP 100 because we examine everything from abolitionist, queer, feminist lens is the trans and binary LGBTQIA movement. However, I want to recognize that these names, LGBTQIA, are colonized names in the fact that they were created as a way to, for westernized people to structurally um, make, make dis- distinctions between people without recognizing the entirety and humanness that people have their own fluidity and experiences. Two-spirit people are very different from people who are gay and trans and, and typically are attributed to people who are native and are only attributed to people who are indigenous and native because um, this is a a word for indigenous people. This is a term for indigenous people. The importance of this is that two-spirited people embody not just um, feminine, but they embody feminine and masculine spirit. Can we go to the next slide, please? So this is for we're we now we're into COVID nineteen the current movement dealing with COVID nineteen um, intersecting pandemics. When we understand that COVID nineteen is a part of a larger system, we know that the predetermining factor to people's sickness and the large amount of Black and Indigenous and Latinx people who have been getting sick, the predetermining factor is not the fact that people, that some people are are dispositioned with disease, but race and race, but racism. Racism and white supremacy are the number one killers of Black, Indigenous, and people of color all over this world. And it is important that we create health justice and a system of health care that promotes care over capitalism. This is happening in this current movement. Right now, people are recognizing the need for collective wellness and collective resistance against a society that is interested not in the wholeness of people, but people and but profit over people. We need comprehensive care models, and this has been fought for since way before my time, that listens and provides intersectional and comprehensive care models. From reform to revolution, oftentimes where we are in a space of reformation, 
Um, reform is used to play, placate, the, placate the revolution by offering simplistic changes to complex structural issues. Here I have two different um, pictures. They're actually from Critical Resistance. They created this. Um, and I don't know if everyone can read these. However, it talks about the difference between reform by creating, by making body cam cameras, community policing, more training, something that happens inside of these spaces when we look at police and police reform. However, we have to understand that body cameras and community policing is not necessarily going to make a police officer better because they're being more watched. We see that consistently, even with the the surplus of cameras and other digital media tools, police are still wantonly in the street taking the lives of Black, Indigenous, and people of color. We need not reformation, but a revolution. Colonialism doesn't just colonize Indigenous and Black folks and remove the possibility of reform, it creates structures that are subsequently um, inhibiting to all upward growth. Therefore, reducing the funding um, to police and putting these funds into mental health services is important or, or health services is important so that we can create justice for people who are in need of help that is beyond what police officers are trained to do, which is to res which is to resort to to violence. American justice is ingrained in ignorance to the causation of societal ills and the correlations that directly associate these ills to current Black and Indigenous death. That is a um, very important when we recognize that. America justice needs to see direct causation in order to create redress for issues that happen when it comes to black and indigenous bodies. This is the next slide, my apologies. Um, the next slide, please. Here I have four pictures. Um, I have Dawn Wooten here. Don Wooten is the um, whistleblower who talked about the people um, who have had unjust um, health procedures that they they did not need on their bodies, and also Patricia Okumo. She um, climbed up the Statue of Liberty um, during the Trump presidency to protest the people who have been imprisoned on the border. The prison industrial complex and ICE are not isolated systems. They are overlapping interests of government and industry, and they use surveillance and policing and imprisonment as solutions to economic um, problems, economic, social, and political problems. The prison industrial complex helps and maintains the authority and caste system of people who get their power through uh, ex 
exploitation of racial, economic, and other privileges. It is the prison industrial uh, abolition that is a uh, goal is to eliminate imprisonment and eliminate surveillance that is unjust and create alternatives to punishment and imprisonment that put an emphasis on people's ability to um, to dismantle oppression and inequality that are used to self color. I put these other these other pictures here. Um, one is of the Panama Canal, and another is of Nicaragua. And I think these are important because when we also examine and uh, immigrant customs and enforcement on stolen land, we have to think about how the United States has has enforced or created through imperialism immigration by invading Nicaragua and occupying the country for two decades or overthrowing Guatemala's elected government in the 1954, um, by organizing the Bay of Pigs invasion in 1961 or fermenting um, and creating rebellions in Panama um, just to build a canal. I bring up a um, very wonderful quote that I know from Juan Gonzalez's Harvest of an Empire. Nowadays, our leaders prefer to search for the causes of crime and poverty and the actions or inactions of those at the very bottom of society. The obscene transfers of wealth over the past 40 years from the bottom to the privileged few at the top and from much of the third world to financial elites and he uses third world um, as a description term here, in the West are all excused as the natural evolution of the market when in fact they are products of unparalleled greed by those who shape and direct that market. According to the Bureau of Justice Statistics, um, Native American or indigenous populations, as it is quoted here, are incarcerated at a rate of 38% higher than the national average. And indigenous populations are the largest group of incarcerated persons per capita. Can we go to the next slide, please? All of this is just to say that our current movement is pushing that indigenous people are and should be abolitionists. It is our criminalization and segregation um, and containment of us as indigenous and black people that has created deep ongoing processes that remove us from our lands and also keep us from being able to uh, um, experience the true, the true life and liberty that we are, we should be justly um, given as people who exist on the lands. Indigenous resistance is created through wellness and community healing, our libera liberation movements, and abolition in political prisons. A specific example is from Alcatraz Federal Prison. Um, from November 20th to 1969 to June 11th, 1971, 
um, intertribal activists came together under the Alcatraz Federal Prison to shut down the operations on the island, um, citing that The 1886 Treaty of Fort Laramie, which guaranteed the return of out-of-use federal lands to Native people, means that they needed to remove themselves from the space. 79 Native activists, or Indigenous activists, as it is quoted here, held the space despite the Coast Guard Brigade. And that is an amazing feat. In, a, in, in the face of great colonialism and imperialism, which has gone across the world and put it under its grip. And lastly, the Black indigenous experience is important. We need, we are, it is important that we recognize that Black and indigenous are two polarizing identities and that Black and Indigenous bodies are often excluded from greater conversations. However, this is because of the things that have been attributed upon each one of these groups through white supremacy and racism, where we, where our unity has not been created in the, in the strength that it needs to be, and it can be with an understanding of solidarity partnerships as powerful, intentional, and necessary to liberation. In Chicago, we had the decolonized Zigagong um, protest rally, and it was just such a wonderful display of people coming together and understanding that when we recognize our collective resistance and responsibility to one another, we can create um, liberation. And thank you so much. I got All right. Thank you to all of our panelists. So folks, feel free to drop um, question and answers into the chat starting now. And um, folks will be texting them to me. And so if you see me reading my phone, that's why. And we'll go through to the panel. But I just wanted to take a moment and um, capture some of the things that I heard. And first of all, just thank you all so much. I'm like really feeling this in my body today. I'm like feeling my Anishinaabe ancestors and my Persian ancestors with us in this continued resistance against the PIC and moving towards liberation. Oh, and I'm just, yeah, so grateful for you all um, and the power in this virtual room. So from what I heard, I heard three themes. Uh, the first one is reform doesn't work, right? Um, the practices of the prison industrial complex have always been used for these projects of um, settler colonialism, of racial capitalism, of um, imperialism. And I really appreciated what Tainetta said of we need uh, not reformation, but a revolution, right? Um, and also hearing this resounding message of solidarity um, because of the use of the prison industrial um, complex and racial capitalism survives by dividing, right? Um, and so it's imperative that 
those of us working towards decolonization, abolition, and anti-imperialism need to be working in solidarity. So Woods, I really appreciated that example from the 1921 Alabama coal miners strike as an example of powerful cross-race solidarity. Um, and also Mohammed, the example of international solidarity um, at being key as the expansion of U.S. imperialism means the expansion of the PIC. And the final thing I heard was uh, repression breeds resistance over and over, right? Um, Tainetta, you brought up that the fact that in 2020 there was a protest for Black Lives Matter in every country in the world. Um, and also, yes, there have been these centuries of attempted genocide, and we're still here, and we're still organizing. And um, yeah, I'm just so excited to be to be with you all. And I'm going to take a look here now at our questions. So the first question I'm going to ask is, how do we connect and message to the masses the struggle for anti-racism with the struggle for anti-capitalism? And whoever feels like moved to answer that question. Um, sure, I, I can... Um take a, a, a go at it. I think that um, uh, there are lots of efforts in this moment to connect those struggles. Um, I think that um, to some degree, like this panel is an example of that, but also um, I think if we could, I think in this moment, people are feeling the impacts of um, the crises of, of capitalism as it's currently unfolding um, and um, a widespread pandemic and all of this happening with really patchy, deteriorating health infrastructure. Um, and meanwhile, um, we are being forced into um, work settings um, with little to no protection. Workers are, people who are considered essential workers are underpaid um, and having to work under dangerous conditions. Um, and then there seems to be, um, while no, little to no relief for working in poor people from the federal government, there seems to be endless amounts of money for police expansion, for prison, for jail expansion, for um, money to go towards um, large corporations. Um, and so I know uh, like people are, as Tenetta was saying, are feeling this um, and drawing these connections. Um, I think that it is important to continue to draw those these connections more deeply, um, both in terms of our understanding of how these um, the like how these systems all work together, but also um, also as uh, Tenetta was saying, um, 
strengthen our and connect our larger um, fights for um, for liberation, uh, better conditions and liberation, whether it be around housing, around access to land, around um, against um, the in, the ongoing in violence of the prison industrial complex and the military and industrial complex, um, and for abolition and liberation. Um, Awesome. Thank you, Woods. So the next question I'd like to bring up is, I'd like to hear from the panelists, and I know we only have a few minutes, so I'd like to hear more from the panelists about intentional Black Indigenous solidarity groups and struggles, the principles that hold them together, and how they frame the issues of land. Sure. Okay. I'll try to talk loudly. Um, and it is a topic that um, does sort of fire me up. So this is good. <laughs> um, but I don't want to take up the whole time. And there's so much to address in that question. Um, but I will say that, um, like for the Red Nation in particular, right, that this is, um, I think, a central consideration because it speaks to um, how intertwined decolonization and abolition are. And that for us, right, there is no decolonization without abolition. Um, and that these, um, these really, these futures that we're fighting for come through um, a, a um, you know, a, an alliance of coalition um, of Black and Indigenous resistance, um, but also, right, recognizing that we've always um, historically also been um, in relationship, right, not always um, in solidarity. Um, so building on those historical relationships um, and the uh, the Red Deal, which is sort of our our um, our project that we want to to share with people, our platform for addressing climate crisis begins with ending the occupation. Right. And to end the occupation, um, we have to abolish the prison industrial complex because we've seen how these two things are intertwined, right, for instance, today. Um and just to end with one of the phrases from our latest position paper, um, communism is the horizon, queer indigenous feminism is the way, where we say that, right, um, black and black and indigenous liberation are the, the spear that are going to sort of pierce um, the, the, the crisis that is the United States. And um, queer, queer feminism is the tip of that spear. Pass it on. Thank you. Well, thank you, Lou. And Mohammed, do you want to quickly touch on this question of being pro-union and anti-policing? How do we address police unions? Yeah, <clears throat> absolutely. Thank you. Um, I, I, this is a great question because it has come up um, in, in, in our movements, right, where there's been some momentum to actually get cops out of labor unions. Um, and I think the understanding there, the way that, um, the way that we understand it is that as Woods really clearly laid out, policing inherently and fundamentally exists to crush labor movements. It, it exists to be an anti-working class force, 
right? And, and it serves the interests of power. So if you're pro-labor, that means you have to be anti-policing, right? And so cops are not workers. They're not uh, a legitimate uh, sector of the working class. They're agents of state violence and of capitalism, of racial capitalism, right? And so I think it's actually a really significant and powerful move that in this, you know, latest kind of upsurge of momentum, around defunding police, that we started to see some momentum and some demands around getting cops out of labor um, unions, which I think is is great. Awesome. Thank you, Mohammed. Um, all right, folks, that is our time. Thank you so much to all of our speakers today and all of you watching. This was Black and Indigenous Liberation Through Abolition. And stay tuned for upcoming uh, PE series from the Abolition Now Network. Thank you. Thanks for listening. If you liked this episode, subscribe to our podcast and to the Haymarket Books YouTube channel, where events like this one are hosted live. And don't forget to check out haymarketbooks.org.